you're listening to Voices of Value, a selection of valuable insights designed to help you get more out of your professional and personal life through simple and easy-to-adopt life lessons. If you're keen to enjoy a better quality of life at work and at home, sit back and join the conversation with your hosts, Peter Kakos and Rick Rushton. Voices of Value, Rick Rushton here with my good friend Peter Kakos. Pete, we have an amazing guest. Absolutely incredible. Graham Alford. It's like a story. It reads of a script of a Hollywood movie. Uh, as a bank robber, a jailbird, if you like, <laughs> a barrister, keynote speaker. He, he has done it all and has got the most amazing story and doing some incredible things, Rick. He is. And, you know, it's somebody who, when you think about someone who's come out of jail twice, you think of oh, someone who's been brought up in a, you know, uh, maybe a dysfunctional home. He had the absolute elite upbringing. He was a, a Trinity boy. He went to Melbourne Uni to study law. He was a barrister. He had it all in the 70s. He had the houses, the cars, the lifestyle, and lost it all. Yeah, and I'm, I'm interested to hear about the alcoholism as well because, um, you know, and his addictive personality and so forth. I know he's going he's gonna to talk about that, but um, I'm sure there's going to be some, some really interesting sort of insights he's going to give us in terms of his life, what he's been through, but more importantly, Rick, how he's actually been able to turn it all around and has picked himself back up and done some incredible things. Well, I've known him for the better part of a quarter of a century, 25 years, and he's as raw and authentic as you'll... You can ask him a, a question, he'll give you an absolute honest answer, but the thing that absolutely thrills me is the way that uh, to see him go out of jail twice to then start up so many things and help so many people. And you know, imagine being in a room, a hotel room, with Nelson Mandela, Muhammad Ali, and Ruben's Hurricane Carter, mm. and uh, you're in amongst all all those guys and uh, they, they share a very common trait. They're all in jail. <laughs> you just need to pinch yourself, <laughs> but, don't you, when you hear, hear they, those names. Yeah, mm. but they are. They're amazing. But he's also got some amazing resources to help people become the very best they can be. And I think mm. it's a it's going to be an interview that I'm sure our listeners are going to love and probably replay more than once. Graham Alford, welcome to Voices of Value. Pleasure to have you, mate, and thank you so much. We date back some 20-odd years, and I always remember a National Speakers Association uh, conference that I attended as a guest, and you were one of the, the speakers, and you just blew my mind with your just authenticity about talking about your story of having a privileged upbringing, a private education, a law practice, and then uh, it all going haywire due to uh, what you're so passionate about today, which is working with functioning addicts. Talk us through that story. Uh, yeah, look, I uh, uh, went to Melbourne University and did a law degree and uh, practiced in the 70s, but uh, I didn't know them, but I was. I was an alcoholic in full flight. I was drinking 20 or 30 beers a day, and I started acting for the underworld. I had a criminal law practice, and I broke every rule in the book as a lawyer, and uh, drinking and gambling saw me uh, finish in jail. I shut off my trust account, got a couple of years jail, didn't realise I was an alcoholic, got out, applied for jobs as if I was still a lawyer, and of course got knocked back, and then I couldn't handle the resentment. So I joined the underworld. The hours were short and the money was terrific, but it was <laughs> never going to work. And um, in 1982, I was arrested for robbing a bank in Chapel Street, Pine, suburb of Melbourne. And uh, the next day, I was back out in Pentridge, which is the maximum security prison at the time. And I, I said to myself, uh, how did it finish like this? This isn't a normal career path. And uh, I sort of had two choices, either to give up or get up. So um, 
I came to the conclusion I didn't want to die a failure and I didn't want to become a jail statistic. So I decided I had to do something about my life and uh, I decided to change it around. And the wake-up call for you is when you were doing the psych test in jail, wasn't it, where you thought you would actually just maybe not give your very best to get a low rating, which might assist you in maybe minimising your term behind bars, but uh, actually the competitive juices kicked in and when you realise you're giving it your best but you were tested almost above somebody who had brain damage, that really was the wake-up call, wasn't it? Yeah, look, uh, you've obviously read the book or heard me speak, uh, Rick. <laughs> I... Um, uh, I, I had the trial coming up for the armed robbery and I was very confident the jury wasn't going to accept that I was just window shopping in Chapel Street Paran <laughs> with overalls and glass and a balaclava. <laughs> so I, I thought, well, maybe I could use alcohol as a defence. And uh, so I engaged a, a psychologist, uh, Ian Joblin, who was a mate of mine now, and uh, the plan was pretty simple. When Ian came out, I, I would make out like I had a bit of brain damage from alcohol, and he would put a port, and I would get a lighter sentence. Uh, at the completion of, you know, and when he started doing the tests, I couldn't help myself. I went flat out. And at the end, he said, Graham, you've got brain damage. I'll send you the report. And the report came about three weeks later, just before the court case. And it basically, well, this is what it said. He said, it said, all for the peers is a tragic figure, chronically addicted to alcohol destroyed his family, his life cycle, his friends, career, and in the areas of memory and concentration, he's lost over 40 points from his IQ, dropping from the top 2% of the population to the bottom five. But it was the final line that got me. It said he verges on being institutionalised. Mm. And I'd never seen myself like that. And for the first time in my life, I had a mirror that worked. And I didn't like what I saw because what I saw was this useless piece of human flesh that had just destroyed everything in its path mm. over the previous 10, 15 years. And that was the that was the real turning point. Mm. And then you're walking out as a free man down the main street of your local haunt and people are coming up saying, Tubby, hey, hey, haven't seen you for a while. Gee, that time went quick. And you're thinking not for you it didn't because you had to change your whole life and set yourself up. What were some of the absolute uh, important lessons you learnt whilst you were in jail, preparing yourself for life after jail, which you've – and we want to get onto that because that's the real success story here, I think, how you turned your life around. But uh, what were some of the things you really worked on inside to make sure you were going to be better outside second time out? Yeah, look, there was three or four things, Rick. The, the first thing was the uh, brain damage. Um, I, I decided to treat my brain as if it was a muscle, and I thought, well, if it's a muscle, the, hard, the more I work it, the better it gets. So I started doing crosswords and uh, playing cards and reading. When I first started reading, I could only read a couple of lines. I couldn't absorb it, and then I... Started, and I enjoyed reading biographies of successful people. And after about 10 or 15 of them, I started to notice that successful people had similar traits. And so I went back over these books and I sucked out the template. And I'd been singularly unsuccessful because my definition of success in the 70s was money, cars, houses, had all those and lost them. So I knew there was more to life than that, but I didn't know what. Mm. Uh, and when I read these successful biographies of people, what I started doing was taking not the whole story of the person, but something in their makeup I liked. So I finished up with a composite picture 
of what I believe success was, looking at different people and taking a characteristic that I found really I liked out of how they rolled and how they travelled. Mm. And so you did the values sort of step ladder, really, didn't you, about sort of getting it all around from how you had your life wired up to where you wanted to go. I know Pete's got a lot of questions he wants to ask you, mate, so I'll fire across to Yeah, uh, uh, Graham, you know, as Rick said earlier that you, you did have a privileged up, um, upbringing. I mean, Trin- Trinity Grammar in Kew, um, Law at Melbourne, you know, fairly prominent uh, schools here in the state of Victoria. It's interesting reading a report in recent times about judges and lawyers and so forth, particularly judges and alcohol. And, and as a barrister, I'm just trying to understand that link. And, and, and was that something of a numbing sort of thing? Or, you know, what do you, what do you think's going on down, um, or what went on for you? And what do you think's going on now in terms of that, that alcohol being that, um, that outlet, if you like? I've got a uh, compulsive gene in my body, which means anything I do, uh, it's flat out um, and to excess. So whether it's eating, exercising, work, you name it, golf, you name it, and, and I'm at it. So moderation doesn't exist in my vocabulary. Mm. And with people who've got that compulsive gene, uh, moderation is not something that's easily achieved. Mm. So when I picked up alcohol, and I'd been brought up in a, an alcohol environment, mum owned pubs, and so alcohol was a, an ingredient and integral to life. You know, you, you drank at Mondays, you drank Sundays, you drank at parties, you drank at funerals, you drank at lunch, you drank at dinner, everyone drank. Mm. So uh, that was what that was the environment I was brought up in. So alcohol was always part of me. My problem was that uh, with that compulsive gene, uh, the addiction came about very, very easily. So, and people come into addiction and substance dependence for various reasons, but that was mine. Mm. In regard to the second part of your question, lawyers in particular, it, it's a it's an industry where there's a lot of uh, stress. Mm. And as lawyers get older and technology changes, there is a there is a not a fear, but notice and I've come across a number of lawyers when they get to forty five or fifty start to feel they're becoming obsolete in the industry. Um, and uh, one of the ways to deal with that is to resort to prescription drugs, illicit drugs, or alcohol. Um, alcohol is a depressant. So uh, sometimes to get rid of that feeling, you finish up drinking. And uh, alternatively, for energy to keep up with the younger people, uh, they can be using ice or coke. Mm, yep. Yeah. So, Gray, moving ahead, I mean, working for the underworld, that just sounds sounds fascinating. I mean, where so especially in Melbourne, I mean, we've we've been surrounded by it by the last sort of 20 years in terms of uh, the spotlight has well and truly been on that that underworld. How did it all start for you? Um, what were those times like? Yeah, it all started. I'd, I'd done a 0.05 case at Winchelsea in 1975, uh, which is out of Geelong. And on the way back, I stopped at the Barwon Hotel in Geelong. And uh, at the bar were two guys I'd never met before, and I got talking to them. And one of them was Pat, Pat Cullen, and Pat was the head of the painters and dockers in Geelong. And, you know, they asked me what I did, and I told him, and he gave me his card, and I gave him mine. And he said, Graham, if I ring you, 
uh, if any of my people get into trouble, would you appear for them? I said, yes. He said, I'll pay for it. I said, okay. A couple of weeks later, he rang me. One of his uh, workers had been charged. I had a bit of luck and won the case. Uh, went back to the Queen of the West Hotel in West Geelong. Uh, got paid by Pat. And uh, within six months, I uh, I was acting for a lot of the underworld and I was bailing them out at three in the morning and I was breaking every rule in the book. Uh, I was drinking with them and socialising with them and going to the two up and nightclubs and baccarat and, yeah, I mean, I was in. The, the trick the grog played on me was I became delusional. Um, I thought I was okay, uh, but in fact I wasn't. And I look back now and it was almost like I mentally was in another world. And that's the trick the alcohol played on me. Is it hard to hard to go back in the mind and, and when people ask you about the time in prison and, and, and those times, is it hard to go back and think about it and talk about it or would you rather no, leave it behind? Or? No, look, I've, I've got a view. There was an American motivational speaker called Joel Weldon who said jet pilots don't use rear vision mirrors. And uh, for me, it's all about the future. And I've got a saying that there's no such thing as failure in life. There's only learning curves. So everything that's occurred in my life, I don't have an opinion it was good, bad, indifferent. It happened, and I'm the person I am today as a result of that. So I don't have any regrets. I don't wish I was back doing anything. I'm excited about the future. So talking about what happened, like we are now, uh, doesn't cause me any angst at all because it's just part of my story, part of my life. It's all helped shape the person I am today. So why would I be regretful, resentful, whatever? Now, that said, uh, if I was to have it all again, I would obviously not do a lot of things I did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, understand. But we don't, we, we don't get that luxury in life. And a lot of it's captured in the, the great book of, that you've written called Never Give Up. And that's a, we'll, we'll make sure there's a link available to all of our listeners if they want to acquire themselves of that. It is one of the my favourite books that's in my library and I've re- reviewed it uh, several times. And uh, again, I had the great fortune of hearing uh, Graham speak uh, back in the 90s, probably about 20 years ago. And I want to fast forward if I can, uh, Graham, because you did learn a lot of stuff, as you said, and you, you, know, you, you don't see failure as anything other than learning experiences. And you use a lot of that intel now with your work you do with functioning CEOs that are functioning addicts and you know, leaders of business and captains of industry. And you help them through that sort of process of getting them off the dependency of those particular substances like prescription drugs and illicit drugs and alcohol and you help them get back to who they were as an individual. I want to talk about that obviously, but how important was Bob Ansett in your uh, particular development uh, coming out of jail a second time and, and changing your life to the, to the point where it is today? Oh, pivotal. Bob, uh, uh, for those who are a bit older, was uh, Australia's leading businessman and he came to the Bendigo prison and did a talk and I introduced him. Um, anyway, it's a long story, which I won't go into now, but uh, when I got out, I spent a year in a scrap metal yard and I wrote to Bob and asked him, could I get a job with Budget? And he uh, he said yes and worked with Budget Renica for three years. And in terms of understanding the importance of the customer, how to treat the customer, how to can-do attitude, uh, Bob was just pivotal, and he and I set up a business together after that. Uh, I still speak to Bob, and um, I mean, he was a man way ahead of his time. Mm. 
Obviously, and budget car rentals was a it was a big business of his. North, North Melbourne, Melbourne Footy, Footy Club, Club. Yeah, who's Pete's very passionate <laughs> about. I always love your story, yeah. Gray. When you went and worked for him in inside an office, and someone was taking you through how a fax machine worked. <laughs> yeah, like I, my last time in an office was 1977-78. and in those days, state of the art office equipment was a golf ball typewriter with a self erasing key. And for the next <laughs> ten years, I was in the underworld and. When I got out of prison in 1986, I worked at the Labor and Scrap Metal Yard. So when I went to work at Budget, I, I was in a clerk in the insurance department. And Barbara Reeves was the manager, and she came over to me and she said, Graham, would you fax this to Mascot in Sydney? I said, certainly, Barbara. And I thought, what in the hell's a fax? I had no idea. <laughs> so I asked this girl who worked with her, I said, uh, Rhonda, I said, this is going to sound like a dumb question, but can you tell me what a fax is? She said, looked at me and she knew the story. She said, oh, come with me. So we go over to the uh, room and we walk in and it looked like a photocopy to me. She said, look, you put it in this end, you type the phone number for mascot budget, mascot here, uh, push send, it comes out this end and they get a copy in Sydney. Yeah, of course they do. <laughs> when, when do you want me to go down and buy the striped paint? <laughs> So you thought you were having the Mickey taken out of you, but that was uh, that was how fast technology had sort of moved in your time out of an office, clearly. Yeah. And, mate, uh, what I think you're really renowned for, for anyone who hasn't read your book, but you may have seen Graham's story on Australian Story, the ABC documentary that sort of tracks some of the most amazing achievements done by Australians across all sorts of industries. And you were certainly renowned for starting what was, in them days, an amazing conference called World Masters of Business, where you brought out uh, everyone from uh, General Norman Schwarzkopf to uh, obviously some pretty high-end politicians, rather than sort of me reel off the names. Maybe just give our listeners a bit of a, a background around that story, because you, you had a leap of faith with all of that. Yeah, look, I, uh, I was putting on uh, conferences in rural Australia, country Australia, with Bob Ansett, and I was driving to Broken Hill. And that was a stinking hot day in January. And I'm thinking to myself, there's got to be a better way to make a dollar than this. I started thinking, well, what if you brought out a world-renowned speaker and put them on a stage in Melbourne? Could you make a profit? So I uh, got the spreadsheet out. And the beauty of Excel spreadsheets is if you don't like the numbers, you just change them. (laughs) um, So I asked a couple of promoters, uh, Ross Marlow and a couple of others, and they all said it can't be done, it won't work, you can't get them here. And that really fired me up. So uh, I launched uh, the thing called the World Masters of Business. And in August of 1997, uh, on a Sunday morning in Melbourne, we had 8,000 people at the old swimming centre, the Glass House in Swan Street. And we had General Schwarzkopf and Lee Iacocca, the head of Ford and Chrysler. Uh, We had uh, Ricardo Semler, who wrote the book Maverick. And we had uh, Stephen Covey, the author of Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Mm. So it was some big out. names. Yeah. Then we had Gorbachev in 1999, and then we brought out Nelson Mandela in 2000. And that particular sort of really set the benchmark then for those type of events coming forward uh, from there because you really wrote the template for it because there was no playbook before you did it. Yeah, no one had done it that way. That's correct, yeah. And you were certainly very close. I think you and I had a discussion once about who you'd love to get, and I was thinking globally, and you were saying it was very clear from your research that if you could have got one guy, you could have filled out Rod Laver Arena, which is a pretty big venue in, in sunny Melbourne. But you said if you could have got this guy, you had no doubt you could have sold every seat in the house. Do you want to talk about your sort of Kerry Packer story? 
Yeah, look, I did some research uh, back in the mid-90s and um, uh, if I could have got Kerry Packer, I could have filled the Rod Laver Arena three times. Yeah, wow. And what was the, uh, what, what, why was that, do you think, Ray? Oh, supply and demand, Rick. Yeah. Um, you know, and everyone had seen him in that banking inquiry where he really cut loose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yep. And everyone just loved it, you know. So, and he was sort of an enigma because he didn't do interviews. Mm. I mean, there was no supply, which built up the demand. Mm. And so of all the World Masters you brought out, and you had Rubens Hurricane Carter, the the famous sort of you know boxer who was uh, wrongly jailed and taken out in the prime of his boxing career and incarcerated. You had some amazing people that you connected with. Who was was there any stories from any of those uh, World Masters that you brought out that uh, you think you know some really great learnings that they shared? Probably not on the stage, but maybe just in sort of you know a private dinner, maybe with you and Carol, your wife, or just something off the stage which you wish that you know maybe the masses had of heard? Um, not so much any killer thing. It was more the person. So um, Candela was just fascinating. He, a, he was charismatic. I mean, if he walked into a room, you felt his presence. Yep. But I remember I, I rang his PAs over the Grange and said, what would Mr. Mandela like to do when he's out here? And she said, uh, rang me back and said, look, she, he'd like to meet with the Jewish business community. So I arranged it via the Smorgan family in Melbourne and Sydney, and I'll never forget in Melbourne, we hired a room at the Hyatt, and uh, Mandela was sitting on the stage by himself, and there was 50-odd Jewish businessmen in the room, and uh, their idea of peace in the Middle East was pretty much to turn Lebanon into a parking lot, and uh, he, he, his view was you've got to negotiate. And I'll never forget, he said... Uh, let me thank them all for coming. And then he said, look, let me leave you with this. Do you want your children to have the same world you have? He got up and walked out. And we went up to his room and Carol and I had been given half an hour to have a cup of coffee with him, a cup of tea. And we sat there and all he was interested in was our grandkids. <laughs> wow. And he just switched off. And then I'll never forget at the time, Muhammad Ali was out here. Dick Brad had brought Muhammad Ali out. So in the Hyatt, in a room, there was uh, Nelson Mandela, Muhammad Ali, and uh, Reuben Carter, the hurricane. Jeez. Wow. And each one was infatuated with the other. <laughs> and you were, I at, you were the middleman. Yeah, and I'm looking at him and I'm thinking, there's 50 years jail here. I'm only an apprentice. <laughs> Oh, that's brilliant! <laughs> that is good, Graham. You've now um, you've now got a diploma of uh, drug and alcohol counselling, so that's where I know you spend a, a lot of time now. Um, drugs and society, or drugs in society, is certainly prevalent. Um, if, if for any, it doesn't discriminate. It's for everyone, isn't it? So every every walk of life now, any any industry. Uh, what's what's your view? What where are we really at, and uh, and how do we, um, I guess, shift things? There would not be a family in Australia, either in the inner circle of the family or the next circle out, that doesn't have some form of issue with substance abuse ranging to dependence and through to addiction. And the problem is, is not only the stigma, which prevents people from getting help, but also their understanding of what addiction is. So... You know, when people say you're an alcoholic, everyone thinks, oh, it's that guy in the overcoat with a brown paper bag in the park, or if it's uh, heroin addiction or ice or coke 
at someone with a needle hanging off a park bench, then nothing could be further from the truth. Um, and now those people didn't start there. That was the end of the road for them. But the, the substance abuse issue is just horrendous. I mean, when I get off this call, I've got to ring someone who's just rang me, uh, functioning, high-level position in IT, drinking two bottles of red a night, marriage about to fall apart, two young kids, collateral damage is horrendous, not only for his employer, not only for his family, uh, but for the system. Now, if he doesn't do something about it, he will be that person, homeless and whatever. And it's just everywhere. I mean, everywhere. And society has to take a revisit on how we look at things. So one of the things that I, I just get horrified about now is binge drinking amongst teenagers. Mm. What they now do is they go out and they get absolutely smashed. Now, quite apart from the danger there and then of being smashed and whatever else can flow from that, car accidents, everything, uh, some people who've got that compulsive gene are going to become addicted. Mm, yeah. And, uh, you know, then they finish up dealing with people like myself and reacts. Mm. The other thing that I find um, is the current treatment facility is archaic. Uh, sorry, methodology and the way they go about it is archaic. Um, it's based on a uh, therapeutic community model with a 12-step facilitation for 90% of the treatment facilities. And it's been the same since 1950 in America with very few changes, and it's a one-size-fits-all approach, and it just doesn't work that way. So one of the things that I'm desperately trying to do before I depart this uh, world is to bring treatment into the modern age and the way it's delivered and using new-age techniques and communication channels, which are currently not being used. So I'm, uh, I'm really passionate about that. And, mate, you had some a fair amount of work and great work that you did when you were on the Board of Life Education, educating the next generation of Australians, what would happen if they put these substances into their body. So, you know, you and I shared this same view, I think, you know, more than 20 years ago now, that you can't sort of stop uh, this by banning it. You can only stop it by educating it. So I know you're a, a massive educator of that, but you're doing a lot more intimate shops, uh, workshops now, aren't you, in terms of retreats in Bali and work within organisations and corporations. If someone wants to learn more about that, if someone actually wants to get in touch with you for a confidential sort of uh, chance to have you not do a life audit for them, but give them a, you know, a map forward away from that, because I find a lot of people want to break the cycle. They just don't have the resources to do it or don't even know where to go and they don't want to ring Beyond Blue and they don't want to ring their uh, their local church. They want to ring someone who's got an expertise in that field, and that's you. How does someone get in touch with you around that? Yeah, look, two things before I give you the answer. Um, I always say if you're going to climb Mount Everest and you've got two choices to get some advice, someone who's climbed the mountain or someone who's written a book about climbing the mountain, who would you go to? And you'd always go to the person who's climbed the mountain. So one of the things when it comes to addiction I believe you should be really speaking to people who've been through it and come out the other side because they can help you. Now, that's not to say that psychs and counsellors who haven't been addicted can't help you. They can, but uh, there's very few of those people that really get it. So the answer to your first part of your question is um, uh, my company's called 21 Renew. That's 2-1 Renew. We take people away to Bali for three weeks and uh, I take the entire three weeks with them and uh, we give them the tools and uh, a program and then we coach them when they come back. 
I have non-residential programs for people who are assessed to be suitable for that. And um, I do consultations, you know, with people who just want to talk about what they can do and what are their options. And uh, all you do is Google up Graham Alford and, uh, or 21 Renew and just give me a call. And just for those listeners who do want to take some action around this, just so you understand it, one of the things that Graham's very passionate about is when you go to advice from someone who's never really lived through it, it's like someone with two arms saying to someone with one arm, I know how you feel. The answer is, unless you've had your right arm lopped off with this sort of challenge, it's very hard for you to other than give a theory around it and what you've learned. And I think his, his point is very valid. It's not to say that clinical psychologists can't help you, but someone who has gone through you know, packing the parachute and jumped out and uh, can tell you about Scott diving is going to be far better than someone's read a book on it and you know one of my favorite professional memories gray is you sort of thinking uh frank w abignale who wrote a great book called catch me if you can frank who i spoke to earlier this year and we're lining him up for an interview on this podcast said that one of his favorite books he got you gave him a copy of never give up and he read it on the flight back home but he actually didn't know a way to get back in touch with it at the time and he let it slip and I said that we were lining up an interview with you so I'm passing over his best uh, that's going back now some 21 years but I always love the way you wrapped it up by saying that uh, if I'm going to read a book about something, I want to I want to read it by someone who's been there, done the experience, so I can learn from it. And that's one of the things that I think really does separate you from the modern day sort of uh, you know wise counsels that you're somebody who's lived through so many life experiences, learnt the lessons, not afraid, as you said in your very authentic answer to Pete. You know everything that's happened's made you who you are. You've had you know failures, but you've learnt from them. You've had a lot of learning experiences, and you've packaged that now into a whole heap of tools and resources for people who are functioning addicts or people who know that someone's a functioning addict and and you can help them change their life at the speed of taking them either away in a retreat or as you say doing the uh, calling coaching online stuff and I would strongly implore anyone just to google Graham Alford to google 21 renewal make sure the links are available in this particular uh, podcast Graham where's your focus right now as I know you're a mad Hawthorne man so you're obviously following the football but uh, yeah, we're off to, off to Bali in a couple of weeks Rick and just on uh, Frank Abagnale, uh, Rick, you were kind enough to ask me to MC that event when Frank was out here and we had dinner afterwards over the road. Yes, we did. Yep. Uh, i got to say that of all of the stories that I've heard, and I've heard some amazing stories at conferences and people have done some amazing things, uh, he is by far the best story I've ever heard. It's a true story, but it is just and to be honest, the movie with Leonardo DiCaprio didn't do it justice, in my no, opinion. No, I agree with that. I agree with that because you and I had that great opportunity because we that was your old stamp, stomping ground too. <laughs> we were at the uh, Ivanhoe or former Ivanhoe Town Hall, I think it was, wasn't it? So, uh, and then we were having the Italian restaurant across the road. That was uh, one of my favourite nights for a long time. Yeah. Well, I've got the photo at home that you kindly gave me. It sits in my office with Carol and Frank and you and I, and. Uh, yeah, if people haven't read the book or heard Frank speak, or I don't know whether you can get a tape now, I guess you can. You went on some sort of website or something. But the most amazing story, and I, I remember when I first heard it, someone gave me a tape, uh, an old cassette tape, yep. and said, you've, it was John Tickell, actually, and he said, you've got to listen to this. I heard this guy in a way, this is back in the mid-'80s, and I listened to it, and, and I couldn't, you know, I played it about four times. It was just mind-boggling. Yeah. Yeah, uh, great. 
Yeah, no, it wasn't uh, one of the most powerful talks I've ever heard as well. And you and I have been very fortunate to sit front row at a lot of uh, you know, great speeches, but that one is sort of right, ranks in the very top. You know, I mean, Mandela is very hard to, to sort of see anyone beating him. But, um, yeah, Frank certainly was on the podium, I would have thought. Well, very different, but just what he did and, and the way he turned his life around and the fact that he was back, you know, doing consulting work for some of the biggest banking and financial institutions – uh, I, I just found it, you know, unbelievable. In fact, that's one of those things where truth's stranger than fiction. Yeah. <laughs> well, Graeme, you've got an incredible story, and you are someone who has well and truly uh, turned your life around and have done some some really incredible things, and, and um, you've done some incredible things, and you're doing some incredible things, and um, it, it's been an absolute pleasure for you to share some of your stories and, um, and and your life anecdotes and so forth here on Voices of Value. And, mate, we are very appreciative. We know how valuable your time is. So on behalf of all of our subscribers, thank you for being who you are, sharing what you do, and most importantly, making a difference. Absolute pleasure and good to talk to you, Pete and Rick. Thank you, mate. Thanks, Graham. Thank you. We trust you enjoyed listening to Voices of Value, a shared conversation between Rick Rushton and Peter Kakos. Their views are not necessarily those of the wider world, but they should be. If you're keen to enhance the quality of your life even further in the future, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or your preferred podcast source. Our website is voicesofvaluepodcast.com. And we welcome both your feedback and ratings on the content we provide. Join the conversation again next week when Peter and Rick continue the search for truth, justice and the value-added way. Listener.